Welcome to this week's edition of Fair Territory. This is my favorite time of year, even I'd say ahead of the postseason. This is when the six-month regular season comes to a climactic end. You see great things almost every day. You see drama. You see teams clawing, trying to get into the postseason. And we've got it all going right now. This week, I want to start off with a team that really is the envy of baseball. The Los Angeles Dodgers, winners of their 10th division title in the last 11 years. And if you recall, the one year they did not win the division title, that was 2021, they won a mere 106 games, finished second to the Giants. The Dodgers need to go 9-5 and five for their third 100-win season in the last four years. What these guys do in the regular season is absolutely remarkable. And I would suggest that this particular regular season is perhaps the most remarkable of all. Now, I know what the naysayers are saying right now as I continue and I go on here. Ken, they've only won one World Series in this entire run, and it was in the pandemic year. I get it. We all get it. The Dodgers get it more than anyone. But the true test of an organization's strength is the way it performs in the regular season. And the postseason, while of course something that every club wants to win, is something that is more random. There's no question about it. Billy Bean famously called it a crapshoot. So you have to look at the Dodgers and what happened to them this season to really appreciate where they are and what they have achieved. Think back to their opening rotation. Julio Urias, Dustin May... Clayton Kershaw, of course, Noah Syndergaard, and Michael Grove. Syndergaard was awful as a one-year $13 million signing. He flopped. He got traded. He got released by the Guardians after he, they acquired him. He basically contributed very little. And they've had one injury after another. Dustin May, Tony Gonsolin, season-ending surgeries. Walker Bueller never came back from Tommy John. All of these things happened. Oh, and to add literal insult to injury, as I wrote in the wind-up last week, Eduardo Rodriguez, their big trade target, blocked a trade to the Dodgers and stayed with the Tigers instead. So the Dodgers had all this happen, and yet they still are winning this division by double digits. If you're the Diamondbacks, if you're the Giants, and especially if you're the Padres, it's almost embarrassing that you couldn't make more of a fight out of this. This was the year to get the Dodgers. Now, I know their offense is the second best in the majors, only to the Braves. They're brilliant. Freeman bets the whole gang. But at the same time, their pitching was in shambles. And here they are. It's pretty much still in shambles going into the postseason. They've got Lance Lynn, the trade acquisition. They've got Bobby Miller, who's been a revelation as a rookie. And they've got Clayton Kershaw, who is physically compromised. And I want to show you something he said last week to Fabian Ardia of The Athletic. And it was kind of a telling quote from Kershaw. Let's take a look at it right now. He said, right now, it's basically Bobby Miller and an open tryout to see who can be on the postseason roster from the pitching side. I have to prove it. Lance has to prove it. We all have to prove that we deserve to be in October. Now, we all know Kershaw is going to be in the postseason rotation along with Lance. Maybe he is trying to motivate himself by saying that, knowing he isn't right physically. Maybe he's trying to send a message to his younger teammates that you still have to keep pushing. Either way, this is going to be an uphill climb. Now, the Dodgers have still a ton of young pitchers in reserve here. Ryan Pepio, Michael Grove, Emmett Sheehan. 
One club official told me last week, we'll be in the 80th percentile for stuff and maybe the first percentile for experience. In other words, a lot of talent, not a lot of experience. Well, as I concluded in what I wrote for the windup last week, who knows? Maybe after all their postseason failures, this is the year when the Dodgers finally break through. All right, elsewhere in Los Angeles over the weekend, we had the latest in the Shohei Otani saga. It ended, or at least the 2023 edition, with a classic Angels-like turn. Otani cleans out his locker. Otani gets shut down for the season with an oblique injury. And Otani is going to undergo what will be a UCL repair. We don't know the exact nature of it, but he will have surgery. Whether it's pure Tommy John, Tommy John with an internal brace, all of that remains to be seen. But that was what was expected all along. It gets accelerated a little bit by the oblique. So the immediate question for me is not where he's going to be playing next season. That's a question we'll entertain, of course, in the offseason. The more immediate question is, is he still the American League MVP? Now, the obvious answer is yes. But Corey Seager has had a brilliant year at shortstop for a team that is still in contention, the Texas Rangers. Now, Corey Seager also missed significant time this year, more than a month with a strained left hamstring early in the season, another 10 days around the trade deadline with a right thumb sprain. So he's mounting a charge here. He's had a really outstanding, historic-type season for a shortstop offensively. And yet Otani, I would say, is still the favorite even though he hasn't pitched since August 9th, for the most part. He pitched one and one-third innings or something when he came back and tried again. And he last played in a game as a position player on September 3rd. So let's look at their respective statistics offensively and defensively, and you'll see kind of where this thing stands. Plate appearances, Otani's still more than 100 ahead. Seager should get about, I don't know, 50 more or so, maybe 60 in his last 13 games. Seager has him an average. Otani has the higher number of home runs, of course, 44 to 31. On base, Otani 412, Seager 399, slugging a bare edge, slight edge for Otani, 654 to 651. So certainly their offensive numbers are comparable. Otani still rates a little bit of an edge. Now, on the defensive side, and you might say, well, what is Otani's defense? His defense is he's a pitcher. That is his contribution to run prevention. And let's take a look at that as well. This too is interesting. Otani, of course, brilliant season as a pitcher before he got hurt. 132 innings, 3.14 ERA, 167 strikeouts. Seager at shortstop, he rates okay metrically. It depends what you look at. He's a good defensive shortstop. 10th in defensive runs saved, 20th in outs above average. He's not embarrassing anybody out there. He is an above average plus defender. So, can Seager steal this thing in the last two weeks? My guess is probably no. If he hadn't missed so much time, I think he would have bigger numbers, perhaps, and maybe then he would be a stronger candidate. Games played is actually part of the criteria for MVP, but this year, those two guys are the two clear standouts. Julio Rodriguez, not quite there. And their games played are roughly comparable, or at least they've missed time, both of them, and that's where this thing is. I still see Otani as a favorite, but Seager mounting a strong push for sure. Finally, I want to talk about what I covered last Thursday, both on television and in print, 
the Orioles Rays series, which was a great four games of baseball. Actually, two of the four games were great, the first one and the last one. Both teams clinched postseason berths yesterday because, well, once the Rangers lost to the Guardians, it was sealed that they were going to both be in the postseason. But that was late in the game, and the game was still continuing. Yesterday's game, I would suggest, was one of the top five games of the year. Now, I don't have them all in front of me, and I can't rank them, but that game was absolutely magnificent. I'll go through it a little bit for those who might have missed it. Orioles down 3-1 in the eighth. Adley Rutschman hits a home run to make it 3-2. Top of the ninth, Rays seem to score a run. Safe call at home plate with Josh Lowe sliding across, and yet the call is overturned. So instead of 4-2, it's still 3-2. Orioles, bottom of the ninth, down to their last strike, RBI double from Adam Frazier. Rays take the lead in the tenth. Orioles tie it in the bottom half on a Rutschman single. And then in the eleventh, after the Rays fail to score, Ryan O'Hearn with his first sacrifice bunt of the year, maybe his career. That starts it off with the ghost runner on second. And then Cedric Mullins, the game-winning sacrifice fly. The Orioles celebrate great day in Baltimore because not only did they clinch the postseason berth, they did it at home in a big way to really almost seal this division at this point. Orioles lead by two games with roughly two weeks to play. And again, they hold the tiebreaker. So by holding the tiebreaker, it's effectively a three-game lead. Let's take a look at their respective schedules the rest of the way. To me, they're fairly even. All right, here's the Orioles' remaining schedule. Three at the Astros, four at the Guardians. Not easy. Two against the Nationals at home. Actually, the Nationals have played fairly well in the second half. And then four at Camden Yards with the Red Sox to close it. Their odds of winning the division as of right now, according to Fangraphs, 80%. The Tampa Bay Rays. They've got three with the Angels, three with the Blue Jays, both at home. They begin a six-game homestand, and then they end with two in Boston and three in Toronto. So that's six games against the Blue Jays team that is desperate to get into the postseason. Raise odds of winning the division 20%. Now, these are the two best teams in the American League. It's really cool to say that, actually. The Orioles and Rays, not the Astros, not the Red Sox, not the Yankees. The Orioles and Rays are the two best teams in the American League. They could meet again, quite possibly, in the division series, and that would be a tremendous division series. And more good news Monday morning for the Rays. Mark Topkin of the St. Petersburg Times reporting that the Rays have a stadium deal in St. Petersburg, downtown St. Petersburg, that they are set to announce Tuesday. That would mean the Rays are set in Tampa Bay and in St. Pete for years to come. Time now for the Inside Dish. This is the part of the show in which I go inside every week a story I've either written or perhaps a story going on in the game that is worthy of a deeper look. This week I'm going to change it up a little bit. Tuesday is my birthday. I'm not going to tell you how old I am. You can look that up on Wikipedia. No, actually I will tell you. I'm 61 on Tuesday. I've been doing this job a long time, almost 40 years professionally. So I figured this week, in honor of my birthday, I would go through the top five highlights of my career. Now, I thought about this. I tried to figure out which ones were the best. And really, there have been so many highlights, it's hard to pick them out. Now, I'm not going to write about this because I don't want people commenting and telling me, Ken, these are not the highlights of your career. I think these are the highlights of your career. No, 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 we're not doing that. These are my highlights. I get to pick. 
and I'm going to start with my number five highlight. We'll go through them one by one. Number five would be the 1987 Fiesta Bowl. That's right, not baseball. The 1987 Fiesta Bowl was the first major event I covered professionally. I was working at the time for the Courier-Post in South Jersey, right outside of Philadelphia. I had covered a big event in college as a freshman, the 1980 Final Four in Philadelphia at the Spectrum, Indiana versus North Carolina championship game. I was working for Penn's Sports Information Department at the time, and somehow I had wangled a press credential for the 1980 Final Four. Don't ask how I did it. I don't even remember. But the 1987 Fiesta Bowl, that was my first big step professionally, first big event. I don't know why the Courier-Post sent me. Maybe it was because of the holiday, New Year's, and nobody else on the staff wanted to go. But I was privileged to go. And originally, I was supposed to watch the game at Arizona State's campus in the basketball arena. That was the overflow setting for writers who did not get placed or seated in the stadium, Sun Devil Stadium. And that was fine with me. I was thrilled to be there. It was a cool matchup. Remember, Penn State at the time, Testa Verde, Paterno, Miami, they were the bad guys. They were the black hats and all that stuff. Jerome Brown, they walked out of the steak fry that week. They arrived in Phoenix in military garb. It was a great, great scene. And Miami was heavy favorites. They had Vinny Testaverde, Heisman Trophy winner. They were unbeaten, as was Penn State, but Miami had been more dominant. So I'm ready to cover this game in the arena. And moments before, maybe 10 minutes before, I get a tap on my shoulder. Someone from the Fiesta Bowl said, hey, we've got a seat for you in the press box. And boy, did they ever. My seat in the press box, it turns out, was on like the 50-yard line. I was so ecstatic and so excited, thrilled to cover the game. It was an incredible game. Penn State, brilliant upset. Testa Verde, I believe, threw five interceptions. And I wrote my story about Testa Verde, saying essentially, hey, man, this guy, he didn't rise to the occasion. I'm 23 years old at the time. I go back home to New Jersey, sort of proud of the job I did, get called into the principal's office, specifically the sports editor's office. And he says to me, uh, not a good game story there, buddy. And I was like, why? He said, the story was Penn State. We are in a Penn State coverage area, South Jersey, and people here wanted to read about Penn State and how great they were defensively, not Testaverde throwing the five interceptions. Well, learned the lesson that day, but at the same time, it was still a career highlight. All right, number four on the list, 1992 Olympics in Barcelona, Spain. First Olympics I covered. I'm working for the Baltimore Sun now, and we actually sent four people to Barcelona. These were the days when newspapers actually did things like that. Four people, Mike Preston, still a columnist of the Baltimore Sun, Mike Litwin, one of the great columnists ever as a sports writer, and Bill Glauber, who at the time, in my mind, was the best Olympics writer in the country. All four of us sharing an apartment, a big apartment, in Barcelona. How cool was that? It was really cool. And I remember the opening ceremonies, same kind of thing. I wasn't supposed to get in, and I got a ticket at the last minute. They had only a certain number reserved for the U.S. writers. That was great. But what I remember most was an assignment given to me by Bill Glauber. Now, he was, like I said one of the top Olympics writers. He was also a little crazy, like a lot of us are. And he said, Ken, why don't you do a story on what it's like to go to as many events in a day as you can? Call it a day at the games. Just pop in different events, see as many as you can. Well, I did this. 
It was hot in Barcelona. I went to, I don't know, 15, 18 events. I wasn't at any of them for very long. And at the end of the day, I'm trudging up this hill. It's hot still. I'm sweaty. I stink. And I'm going to this judo match. That's going to be the last thing I cut. So I go up this big hill, fighting the crowd, finally get to my seat in the arena or take a seat in the media area, sit down, kind of take a deep breath, look to my right. And there is the king of Spain watching this judo event because a Spanish woman was competing. It was incredible. And that is why the Olympics are on my list of highlights. Actually, any Olympics would be. I covered two others, 1996 Atlanta and 1998 Nagano, but they weren't nearly what the 1992 Olympics were. All right, number three on my list, 1991 World Series. Braves and Twins covered this for the Baltimore Evening Sun, no longer with us. And that was a World Series that still for me is number one. Five one-run games, three in extra innings. Couldn't wait to get to the ballpark each day. Now, the Baltimore Evening Sun was a paper that published five days a week, Monday to Friday. So at the end of game five, I came home because there was a possibility that the series would end on Saturday, game six, and I wouldn't need to go back. They didn't want to send me back for an event that would take place Saturday, and I wouldn't be writing until Monday. Fair enough. So I go home. What happens Saturday night in game six? Kirby Puckett, walk-off homer, Jack Buck, the famous call. We'll see you tomorrow night. I get on a plane to Minnesota. The next day, game seven. Smoltz and Jack Morris, one of the great duels in World Series history. Jack Morris, 10 scoreless innings. The Twins win on the Gene Larkin single. And I remember this vividly. This is one of my highlights. Post-game press conference, I asked Tom Kelly a question. And my question was this. What would it have taken to get Jack Morris out of that game? And Tom Kelly, who didn't smile much, very serious guy, but a great baseball person, he said, what would it take? Would have taken a shotgun. 1991 World Series, number three on my list. Number two on my list, the 2011 World Series, specifically game six. Now, there have been some other great World Series I've covered. 2001, certainly after 9-11 with the Yankees. That was really emotional. 2016, the Cubs beating then the Indians. That was an amazing World Series too. But 2011 stands out for me because of game six. And I look back, game six was a game that wasn't the best played game ever. There were five errors in this game committed. But the Cardinals and Rangers, it was just one of these nights that seemed like it would never end. And there was so much drama. You remember the Cardinals' comeback, of course. The Rangers had a three-run lead in the seventh. They were one out away in the ninth. David Freeze, the RBI triple, passed the leaping Nelson Cruz, one of the more famous plays in recent memory. That tied it. Josh Hamilton, two-run homer in the 10th. This was when Josh Hamilton was Josh Hamilton. And then the Rangers were one strike away again in the bottom of the 10th when Lance Berkman tied it with an RBI single. Freeze then the walk-off in the 11th. And Joe Buck, Jack Buck's son, who I'm working with on the Fox broadcast, has his own immortal call, which was the same as his dad's 20 years before. We'll see you tomorrow night. Game 7 was a little bit anticlimactic. The Cardinals won, of course, but that game six, anyone who saw it will never forget it. Finally, number one on my list, I've talked about this a lot, and it will always be number one in my mind, no matter what happens. 
Cal Ripken breaking the consecutive game record in 1995 at Camden Yards. Now, it's number one for me because I was working in Baltimore at the time. I was a columnist for The Sun at this point, past a beat writer. I'd graduated to columnist, and I was still pretty young. I was not yet 33, just about to turn 33. And back then, before the internet, before you can read anything you wanted pretty much online, there wasn't an opportunity for sports writers to read each other's work unless they were in the same town. So I knew going into that game, the record breaker, we were all counting down to it, that sports writers would be flying in from all over the country. This was a big event. President Clinton was there. Vice President Gore was there. Both. Both guys were there. Joe DiMaggio was there and a host of other dignitaries. So I knew that my fellow sports writers would be seeing my work the next day, and I wanted to be as good as I could be. And Mike Litwin, I mentioned him before. I talked to him that day. He kind of guided me through maybe how to go about writing the column that night. I did not know what would happen. Of course, no one did. Remember the victory lap and all the things that happened. It was just a beautiful occasion. And the next day, my column was on the front page of the Baltimore Sun. And people say all the time, ah, you guys, you're always looking for headlines. You're always looking to sell papers. Well, they don't say that so much anymore. But back then, they said it a lot. And the truth of the matter is, the newspaper, the day after Cal Ripken broke the consecutive games record, was the best-selling newspaper in the history of the Baltimore Sun. And I would say it was a pretty positive event. So that remains the highlight of my career. And I've even got this column framed to this day because it's something that just stands out to me so vividly. And the last thing I'll say about it was that night when I came home in Baltimore, my wife was waiting for me and she had watched the game. Not really a sports fan, but she had watched the game and she said, you know something? I was really glad you got to cover that. That was really cool. You have to write about so many negative things and so many bad things that are happening all the time. And this was a positive thing. This was something really great. I don't know that it was my best column that night, but it was my best shot. And it's something I'm really proud of to this day. It's a night I will never forget. Number one on my list of highlights. Dude and Dork of the Week. Dude this week, a little bit of a difficult decision for me. Royce Lewis of the Twins with four Grand Slams this season, five in his career. Kind of tough to go against him. He's had an amazing run for the Twins, who could be a surprise team in the postseason. But I'm going to give Royce honorable mention, and I'm going to go with Matt Olson. Matt Olson, 52 home runs, an Atlanta Braves franchise record. 52. He beats Andrew Jones, who, of course, had 51. And... This is a franchise, of course, with some great Hall of Famers in their history, Chipper Jones, uh, Hank Aaron, some others as well. And for Matt Olson to set that record, to become the worthy heir to Freddie Freeman, this is his second year with the team since replacing Freeman, what an accomplishment for him. And that Freeman-Olson comparison, we're going to make it as they go along, but my goodness, both of them this year are going to be top four MVP candidates. And Matt Olson, hometown guy, has just performed at a, an extremely high level all season long. 52 home runs. Congratulations to him. He's due to the week. Dork of the week. Well, we haven't even in this show mentioned the Red Sox dismissal of their chief baseball officer, Heim Bloom. 
And I get a little bit tired each week of naming an owner as a different dork of the week. And yet, it seems like I'm left with no choice. Red Sox ownership, dorks of the week. Now, I'm not saying Heim Bloom was blameless for what has happened with the Red Sox this season and before that. He certainly has made his mistakes, there's no question about it. He largely followed the mandate that ownership gave him when they hired him after the 2019 season. The mandate was to rebuild the organization, rebuild the infrastructure, rebuild the farm system. That happened. Now, Heimbloom at the major league level was not as effective as he would have liked to have been, of course, outside of 21 when they reached the ALCS. But at the same time, it's ownership that ordered the trade of Mookie Betts, or at least did not sign Mookie Betts and then were forced to trade him. It's ownership that has not made a huge investment in free agency the last few years. It's ownership that's running this show. Now, not at the deadline, and the deadline, in my view, was Himes' downfall as chief baseball officer both of the last two years. But the Red Sox are on their way. They're going to be okay. It's going to take some work. They're going to have to rebuild the pitching staff. But here is their next president of baseball operations, general manager, chief baseball officer, whatever you want to call it. It's going to be their fourth in the last 13 years. Fourth. Ben Sherrington, Dave Dombrowski, Heimblum, next. That speaks volumes, and that tells you where the problem is. Yes, there are problems and were problems with Heimblum's stewardship, but it all starts at the top. Red Sox owners, dorks of the week. Summer is coming to an end, but it's still so hot and sunny everywhere. Protecting your eyes is important. That's why I want to tell you about our newest sponsor, Shady Rays. Shady Ray is an independent sunglasses company that has a world-class product just as good as the more expensive sunglasses out there. They have durable frames, extremely clear optics for outdoor adventures, and what really separates them is the best protection plan in the industry. If you lose or break your pair, even on day one, Shady Rays will send you a brand new pair with no questions asked. And if you don't love your Shady Rays, you can exchange them for a new pair or return them for free within 30 days. So you can wear and buy your Shady Rays with the confidence that they have your back. So from building play sets for pediatric cancer patients to providing young adults with MS the outdoor adventure of a lifetime, Shady Rays is helping communities all over the place. Now right now, Shady Rays is giving out their best deal of the season. So go to ShadyRays.com and use the code F-O-U-L for 50% off two plus pairs of polarized sunglasses. Try for yourself the shades rated five stars by over 250,000 people. Looking ahead this week on Fox, we've got another Thursday night broadcast. It's going to be Mets at Phillies from Citizens Bank Park in Philadelphia. Obviously postseason implications here for only one team. The Phillies all but have locked up the fourth seed in the National League, the highest wildcard seed. And they could be on a collision course with the Braves in a division series rematch from last year. Obviously, they're going to have to get through the wild card round to get there. But the Phillies remain quite an interesting team. I'm a little worried about their starting pitching right now. Aaron Nola, inconsistent. Taiwan Walker, okay, not great. Zach Wheeler really is the only one that is performing at an extremely high level, though Ranger Suarez is on his way back. But Mets-Phillies should be interesting to take a look at the Phillies right before we get to the postseason. 
Okay, time now for Grilling Ken. These are your questions. We're going to go to them, and let's take a look at what we have this week from you guys. Starting with H-Town Wheelhouse, trademark two times World Series champs, 17-22. Okay. The Astros are struggling to be consistent in the final stretch. Could the fact that they've played more games than any team in the last three to five years have something to do with it? Some say it's attributable to Dusty Baker. What's missing in that clubhouse? H-Town Wheelhouse, you're panicking a little bit too much for my liking here. Yeah, the Astros didn't have two good series against two of the worst teams in baseball, Oakland and Kansas City. In fact, they lost both series. But I chalked that up more to a team just kind of getting ready for the postseason, maybe letting down their guard a little bit. The one thing that worries me about the Astros is not that they've played more games than anyone in the last few years. But that's a good point. But they're... Starting pitching is not where you would want it to be. Verlander, good, not the same as he was last year, although he wasn't great in the postseason. Framber Valdez, brilliant again on Sunday. He looks like a guy, of course, you can count on. And then you've got Hunter Brown and you've got Christian Javier, both with five-plus ERA since the All-Star break, though Brown was better in his last start against the A's. That's the part of the team that has always been so strong and now it's a bit of a weakness. And maybe you can attribute that to going so deep in the postseason and wearing down some of their pitchers. Remember, they've got some injured, too. McCullers and Jose Arquiti didn't really come back fully. Okay, but at the same time, they still thought they'd be pretty well set, and it doesn't look like they are as well set as in the past. Let's go to the next one. This next question comes from Tyler Milliken. Tyler asks, who do you consider to be the number one candidate to lead the Red Sox front office moving forward. Depends what ownership wants, Tyler. And I'm not sure what they're going to want at this point. They kind of bounce all over the place. They went from Ben Sherrington, who is sort of a homegrown executive, to Dave Dombrowski, the ultimate free agent executive, to Haim Bloom, who came from Tampa Bay, which is why they were so focused on efficiency. And he seemed to be the perfect fit for that. It would seem to me they'd go to somebody experienced, quite obviously. A few names have been mentioned already. Sam Fold, who is the general manager of the Philadelphia Phillies, is one. But the leading candidate in my mind might be Mike Hazen of the Arizona Diamondbacks, if he wants to leave Arizona and go back to Boston. Mike Hazen has run the Diamondbacks for a few years now. And keep in mind, he started his career with the Red Sox. He's done a pretty... Terrific job this season, especially with this team. They've built their farm system up. They've supplemented, made a good trade for Guriel and Gabriel Moreno. They're in a good spot, the Diamondbacks. So I would expect the Red Sox will at least talk to Mike Hazen. And there are other candidates as well. I don't want to give anybody short shrift. Don't start writing and texting me and saying I left you out. I'm sure I'm missing a few. But Hazen stands out to me as we look at this right now. All right, let's go to our final question. And this one comes from The Approach Shot. The Approach Shot asks, MLB.com just posted an article saying the Twins could be World Series contenders due to their starting pitching. How far-fetched or not do you think this is? I would say not far-fetched. And the Twins are kind of a dark horse team here. Their starting pitching is better than it has been in recent years. It should be good enough to help them win their first postseason series since I don't know when, since I was a young child. And... With Pablo Lopez, Sonny Gray, and Joe Ryan, you can actually dream a little bit. They'll probably get the Rangers or Mariners in the first round, the wild card round. That's how it looks right now. 
And don't forget also, the Twins' offense has really come on in the second half. Due to some younger players like Eduardo Julian and Matt Walner, due to Max Kepler coming around, a lot of good things happening offensively. They're fifth in the majors in runs scored per game in the second half. The Astros, we just talked about them. The fan was worried about them. Well, they're second in the majors in runs scored since the break, second only to the Braves. So the Twins have the offense. They have their starting pitching. The bullpen is going to be a question. But yes, I can see them making a run here. I don't know to the World Series, but certainly they should be more of a force than they have been in the past. I want to thank everyone for their questions. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching on YouTube. You know where to find us, not only on YouTube, but also on Apple and Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to us, like us, do whatever you have to do. One programming note. Next week, we are not going to do a show on Monday because of the holiday Yom Kippur. We will come back on Tuesday. So we will see you guys in eight days. Have a great week, everyone. Download the BetMGM Sportsbook app on iOS or Android or visit BetMGM.com. Sign up and deposit at least $10 into your BetMGM Sportsbook account. Place your first wager and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if the bet loses. If that bet does lose, your bonus bets will be available once your initial wager is settled. Gambling problem or concern? Call 1-800-GAMBLER.